Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. Whoever, who, any, everybody might happen to be. This is Dr. Simon, and my show, as always, are the stories we live by. And I would like to talk tonight. Um, well, let me give you the background of uh, this broadcast. I just came back from a uh, really wonderful tour of Italy. Uh, I recommend it. Italy is a wonderful place, full of history, really good food, uh, gorgeous country, and uh, rather wonderful people. And on this tour, I met and made friends um, with a psychiatrist by the name of Jim Morrison, James Morrison, uh, uh, as he publishes with. Uh, Well-published, very interesting individual. And there were two things that uh, happened on the trip. The first is that he was reading a book uh, that, in its way, is the in- part of the inspiration for tonight's sto- uh, story, called The Book of Woe, Psychiatry, uh, The DSM and the Death of Psychiatry. The Book of Woe, the DSM and the Death of Psychiatry by an individual who's both a journalist and a practicing psychologist named Gary Greenberg. And I love this book. Um, it's really quite wonderful. Greenberg had been invited to be part of the research in the development of the new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, which will be apparently may have come out yesterday. I'm not sure it was even published yesterday, but it's supposed to be out very shortly after many, many delays. And it's now the DSM-5, the one I've been using for the last many, many years, has been the DSM-4. Uh, it has a revised DSM-4TR, but essentially still the DSM-4. And I, I was, it was a revelation, this book. Uh, The second thing that stimulated uh, my thought about this show was a discussion that uh, Jim and I had when leaving a really nice Italian restaurant for lunch. Uh, We were in a good mood, and uh, like two uh, crazy people, uh, we both agreed that the world is literally being destroyed by human beings, and that we as a species may not make it, uh, we're both very upset and frightened about it, and we discussed this, and then left it. You know, another glass of wine. Uh, if the world is going to come to an end, it's not doing it today. Uh, both of us are very, very upset about the uh, global warming problem, which is in denial, about the increasing violence in many parts of the world, uh, a variety of things. Uh, and partly because both of us <clears throat> um, have a, a view of people that at times um, gives us doubt about our capacity to really do something to halt the serious problems that we're now uh, uh, experiencing, many of which are either directly our uh, consequence of our actions. Uh, or um, 
could be ameliorated. Something could be done if we had decided to put our intelligence to solving some of these problems. And what I want to talk about today, starting with the Greenberg book, is why I think we're in such trouble and why I'm not sure we can ever get out of it. Now, I'm not going to go through the book itself. Uh, if I've invited Gary Greenberg to be on my show, I would much rather discuss it with him and go through the details. I mean, the absolute craziness uh, uh, that was involved in making um, making these um, uh, this new DSM, uh, all the problems uh, that were attendant on it and the mistakes that were made, uh, and I agree with Greenberg that uh, the book DSM-4 was a disaster. Uh, DSM-5 is going to probably be a bigger disaster for a variety of reasons that I won't discuss tonight because they're not really relevant to this show. If Greenberg doesn't call me, I will do a show on the new DSM, or at least I'll do one after I get a copy. If I get a copy, because the new one costs $200. The old, the DSM-4 was, was about $100. This is $200, um, and uh, I'm not sure I want to lay out $200 for a book that I know uh, has a very little uh, intellectual, social, moral uh, value. What fascinates me, and, and I'm going to start with in terms of why I think we have such problems, um, and, and we're not going to solve them, is that... Greenberg, as part of his research, became friends with Alan Francis. Alan Francis is one of the top, most respected psychiatrists in the United States, in the world. He was instrumental uh, in the development of the DSM-IV. In fact, his name is on it. He's the, he was the leader uh, of the whole program. Uh, it's his baby. It's his endeavor. Now, if you've been ever listening to my show, you know I go through a whole logical argument why mental illness can't exist. That it's not an illness unless there's something neurologically or biologically underpinning the particular problem. And uh, it's not uh, an illness if it's based simply on behavior. Because when we say that something is wrong with someone's behavior... Uh, the judgment is not medical, it's innately, it's inherently moral or ethical. So I go through this whole argument. Now I start to read in this really wonderful book. I, I mean, it's over 400 pages, and I read it in, in two long sittings. I just couldn't stop reading it. That Francis, Alan Francis, knows that these things that he's written about, he's developed, aren't real illnesses. They're metaphors for illnesses. And he says they should never have been reified or made real as illnesses, actual illnesses. Now, I never have to develop another argument again uh, as to uh, trying to prove why the DSM doesn't contain anything of real medical nature. It's just a moral, a book of moral bad names that hides uh, behind pseudo-medical terminology. What Francis, uh, what got Greenberg, the psychologist who wrote the book, interested in this, 
is that Francis openly referred in his presence to the book as bullshit, containing bullshit, if not all bullshit. But, however, if it's a lie, said Francis, it's a noble lie, because all of the good that has come from trying to organize human misery and unhappiness into logical categories, into categories that may not be illnesses, he doesn't, doesn't define what they are, except to say they're constructs, that is, ideas and words that people have come up with, and all the good that has come out of the treatment of individuals suffering from these so-called constructs or non-illnesses. Now, of course, he's taken to task, Francis. Uh, he's taken to task uh, by Greenberg and by me, if I could sit down and talk to him. Uh, if it's not real illness, it's metaphorical illness, it's constructs, then why should psychiatry be in the forefront of defining and treating these illnesses or non-illnesses? Why? But moreover, how is it that Francis can continue to be a psychiatrist in the face of what he calls bullshit and a lie, however noble the lie might be? Now, what's so interesting to me is that Greenberg raises the possibility that all of psychiatry is a confidence game. He doesn't end up believing that. But in the absence of any other explanation, and he goes through the fact that the DSM is owned by the American Psychiatric Association, it is one of the large sources of its income, major source of its income. And therefore, if that would go out of business, the AMA could go out of uh, the American uh, Psychiatry, APA, uh, could go out of business. So a lot is riding on the success of the DSA, the, uh, the, the DSM, and that the public accepting the validity of what is being uh, uh, promoted by that book and being willing to take all of the drugs recognized to having terrible, terrible side effects of only being temporarily successful in the best of cases, of causing so many serious so-called side effects and problems. Um, how do you justify that? And the answer to me is that he's not a confidence man. In fact, the more he's described in the book, the more I see Francis as a good person, a mensch, intellectual, well-educated, erudite, having a very wide... Um, oh, wait a second, I have somebody here. Uh, hello? 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 Uh, this, is, this is James Morrison calling, and I haven't called in before, and I'm not sure whether I'm actually speaking to you or if I'm just talking to myself. No, you're talking to me. How are you, okay. Jim? I'm just great, uh, and I've been listening since the beginning of your show, and I'm, I'm very interested. And, uh, I, and I want uh, you to I'm, kick in any time you think I am misstating a case or, uh, or, or being unfair in any way. Um, put my feet to the fire. 
I don't. And think, if anybody I else would like to call in and join this, uh, please, please do. I don't. How are you, by the way? I'm I'm just uh, terrific, and uh, it uh, your your opening um, couple of minutes took me back to our wonderful trip uh, to Italy together. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, 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 that was that was terrific. Yes. Uh, I. The, I, I don't think I've got an awful lot to contribute to your uh, discussion, except that uh, as a psychiatrist and as somebody who is very interested in the, uh, I, I will say, the uh, uh, execrable DSM-5, and I speak from some experience having now read the first uh, 60 or so pages of the book, which arrives. Is it is as bad as you thought it would be? Well, I uh, in in some ways it's a little worse. Uh, in, oh in wow! The, the writing is really very difficult. Um, you know, my job uh, uh, is to try to turn it into something that is understandable by um, by uh, people who who need to study uh, mental health diagnosis in order to to learn the craft, and mm-hmm. I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to do that. <laughs> Uh, but uh, in any event, um, well, what you're uh, saying about uh, uh, psychiatry itself uh, or the mental health field, uh, to, to be a bit more inclusive, is Yes, is I, want, very, I want to talk about that in a minute. It, it's, it's very interesting to me, and um, I'm, uh, my, my plan is uh, mainly just to listen. Uh, okay. But uh, I, I, I will say that... Uh, I, I, I don't intend to engage with you on uh, some of the issues that you're raising, except to say that whether it's uh, whether the field itself is is uh, bullshit or or uh, or not, uh, there are, uh, to my way of looking at it, there are some um, uh, uh, aspects to it that are valuable for people who okay. have. Whatever we call, uh, want to uh, call mental illness, mental yes. disorders. Yes, or, and you know what, let's what? hold that, because what I want to do is not deal just with psychiatry. Um, I've referred to in writing my own field of psychology as a kind of dog and pony show. Um, a couple of years ago, the president, many years ago, the president of the APA, uh, American Psychological Association, uh, had uh, suggested to give uh, psychiatry away, psychology away, give it to the public. And somebody who I'm going to read from about in a moment, Sigmund Koch, who was a uh, philosopher who got involved in trying to understand behaviorism, that theory in psychology, uh, after Wall started studying psychology, and his advice to the president of the American Psychological Association is take it back because <laughs> don't give it away. Uh-huh. It doesn't have any really great value. But my point at this, in this show is that I want to talk about why I think our collective field, yours and mine, uh-huh. really isn't dealing with the right problem or the real source of human misery that we end up diagnosing and calling, whether it's a okay. real illness or a metaphorical illness. And that's what I want to develop uh, as we Fine. go along. Fine. And what I'm going to suggest is that somehow, as human beings, we seem unable to grasp two things. One, 
what I think our real subject matter should be, okay, and two, the major reasons why, once we've defined our subject matter, there's so much misery and difficulty in solving big problems. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's what I would like to develop. So this is not a show where I want to beat up on psychiatry. I mean, okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to do that. I don't even want to beat up on psychology. What I want to point out is that it's, it's almost as if we all suffer from a delusion. And the, the definition, if I understand it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, a delusion is a false belief held in the face of contradictory evidence. Right? You can't give up. The first thing anybody learns when they do therapy is when somebody comes in with what you believe is a delusion, don't argue with them because that belief is held very deeply. It has to protect the individual from something else that they don't want to see, yeah, I love something the they're really frightened of. I, the problem I the is when you work delusion. off a delusion, you do dangerous and damaging things. Right. Right? So what do I believe is my delusion, maybe your delusion, and Francis's delusion? And that is starting with what I believe, and this is my belief, what our basic um, subject matter should be. And that, to me, is the experiencing human being. I believe in subjectivity, the idea that we're subjective beings. We're embodied and something happens to the body, it changes our ability to process information. Um, One of the things I've struggled with in terms of my own philosophical understanding is not to end up with a ghost in the machine, you know, that we have a mind and a body, but that basically our minds have to be understood as activities, activities of the body, including the brain. So the brain, as it does its work, can be understood at one biological level. But psychology, I think, is a real field. I think it's genuine. Mm -hmm. And the attempt that my field has done and psychiatry has done is sort of get rid of the subjective experiencing individual. So when somebody says to me, who, who is complaining about wanting to die, I'm no good. I don't see that as a symptom of anything. I see that as a basic belief with all kinds of emotional consequences. When then somebody tells me that they are hopeless in life, that nothing they will ever do or have ever done is able to change things, when they see the world as a shithole in which there's no love and that there's no comfort, I put that together and I say, if a person feels hopeless and helpless, filled with self-hatred, fear and rage against the world, That's a depression. The depression doesn't cause those beliefs. Those beliefs make up what we then abstract and call a depression. And I stand on that. Okay? The next question I ask is, where do these beliefs come from? And indeed, I think that some people are born with biological sensitivities that many of us don't have. I'm convinced that many of the people I worked with over the years who were schizophrenic can't go numb well enough. They keep suffering. 
and they have to do something with the suffering. I'm very good. I'll give you a personal. When I get really scared, I get detached. I intellectualize. If I think I have an illness, I go on the Internet and start Googling as fast as I possibly can because that's how I handle things. Um, in fact, I just went to the doctor uh, yesterday morning. I had, to get, I, I had uh, prostate cancer a couple of years ago, and I had to get my uh, latest PSA. And I was very calm, and I went into the office. I thought it would be okay. And the nurse took my blood pressure, which was 160 over 100. <laughs> I, I felt very calm, Jim. Yeah. But that's how I deal with things. Yeah. I think I'm calm, but I'm not calm. Yeah, right. Okay? <laughs> the underlying physiology is not lying. But my experience has to be taken into account on a psychological level. Fortunately, by the way, the PSA was perfect, and for the first time I don't have to come back for another PSA in a year, for, for an entire year. So I'm feeling rather good today about that. Yeah. Any event, so, where I think the suffering comes from, the, the, the way in which a person sees the world is partly biological. I think it's partly, uh, I'm an evolutionary psychologist. I believe a lot we're programmed to, to relate to certain situations in a certain way. And it doesn't mean we have to, but, uh, you know, hygamous, uh, hygamous, uh, women monogamous, hygamous, hygamous, men are polygamous. Men are polygamous. Yes. Um, I, I think partly that's biological. Uh, sex is a cheap act for a man and a very expensive act. I use those in terms of, you know, the biological uh, evolutionary theory for a woman. And it changes the way you see the world. On the other hand, most of the people I've worked with over my lifetime, and it's now about 45 years that I've been working with people, uh, they're, they're, they're suffering when they have these beliefs and self-hatreds is relational. It's relational. I had a patient I worked with for many years whose mother constantly referred to her as the abortion that failed. Oh. How's that one? By the way, that's one of the best I've ever heard. Yeah. Another one, I shit you out. Um, the children who grew up in alcoholic homes and the source of anxiety. You know, I always see anxiety not as a, a, uh, a negative emotion, but as something that is a survival emotion. I think all our emotions are evolutionarily created for survival. I think anxiety says you're bullshitting yourself or you're being bullshitted and you can't afford to live on the bullshit. So you have to find the truth. Right? So uh, while I'm waiting for my diagnosis, I'm very anxious because I don't know what it is and I know there's something there. Probably started in the bush. Something's moving in the bush. Is that something I can have for my dinner or is that something that's about to make me its dinner? Yeah. <laughs> once you find out... Once you find out, you're not anxious. You may be happy. You may be afraid. The children of alcoholics, people who drink a lot, are, are filled with anxiety because the person who does the drinking is always denying that that's a problem. And then if it's the father, I had one patient I work again a number of years, daddy doesn't feel well. Daddy was drunk. The kids smelled it. And many of us are raised... Under the, under the regime of who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? 
don't you go crazy watching the news and listening to politicians? I mean, do they ever speak the truth? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's infrequent at any rate. Uh, infrequent at any rate. So it's relational. So to me, it's an understanding of a human experience in relational context. Now, there are certain aspects of psychoanalysis that deal with this, and I want to talk a little bit about Freud and his delusion. I thought Freud made some really great contributions. Number one, he talked about defense mechanisms, and he said, human beings are capable of believing anything they want to believe and capable of disbelieving anything they want to disbelieve. I think that's a basic given. He himself then developed this theory of sexuality and said that all human misery comes from repressed and poorly dealt with sexual feelings. Now, to me, that's about uh, as logical and real as saying everything in human misery is due to some brain chemical upset that we can't prove exists. What we now know, especially through the work of Jeffrey Mason, who was an analyst and really got into the inner circle of New York psychoanalytic, yeah, I never that, could pronounce his middle name, Musayef. Musayef. Musayef, I think it's Musayef. Jeffrey Musayef. Yeah. He said, Freud probably knew that all of these young women who were suffering from the guilt and torment of repressed sexuality had in fact been sexually abused. Yeah. Right? So what did he do? He turned around the relational cause of their suffering and said, each of us has this id, an animal desire, that causes all of our psychological problems. Because had he come out, probably, and said the truth, they would have run him out of town. He was talking about rich and powerful people in Vienna, who right. didn't want the idea exposed that they were diddling their daughters. Right? <laughs> right. So now you have psychoanalysis, much of it, hung up, I mean, I, when I, I, and, and my, my training, and I had some training in psychoanalysis, the Freudians hated the people from Horni. Horni hated the people from Adler. Adler hated the people from William Allison White, Harry Stack Sullivan, in mid-century. The only thing they all agreed on is that if there was relational problems, that is, it was your mother who did it. <laughs> Mothers were blamed for everything. Your mother didn't give you the right love and nurturance. And in fact, many of the people I've worked with have problems because their mother didn't give them the right nurturance. But when you looked a little further, you discovered that the mother didn't give them nurturance because she had no nurturance. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's poor. Or maybe she's married to the drunk who spends all his money. I mean, one of my patients that I worked with for a very long time, wonderful a woman who grew up, in a family of eight or nine children, and when the father came home drunk, he picked one of the kids and bashed his teeth out. The kids never knew when daddy was coming home drunk, so they tried not to sleep, or they would sleep in closets, or they would sleep on the roof to hide. And after a while, when you listen to people's life stories, you stop saying, gee, this is an unusual occurrence. And you realize how many homes are structured this way. Right? 
so that when you, I look at the suffering, I look at this relational set of problems, and then it starts to broaden out. And that's really where I want to go and finish up the show today, because that's okay. really where I get upset and frightened, because you and I end up on the same page. Nothing's going to be done about that. Right. When I look at the worst people in history, they're all leaders. Everybody's worried about some crazy guy with a gun shooting them. Nobody has ever done more damage to large number of peoples, that people than the people who have self-selected. And then the big question is, why do we follow them? Why do we allow ourselves to be led by them? Why do we believe? Why are we so quick to believe noble lies and bullshit? Even if deep down we know they're lies and bullshit. Right? Let me read off some names. And then I have a couple of things I want to read. How about Hitler? There's a good one. How much suffering was created by the people who followed him and what he said? How about Stalin, Mao Zedong? You know, between them, over 100 million people were killed. Yeah, it's really it's remarkable, isn't it, that the... Uh that four or five, actually, you, you count um, Paul Pot and uh, yes, a couple I, I of was, others. Yes, he's next on the that, list. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that uh, all these people lived within the same period of time, basically, in the same century. I mean, yes. how does that happen? The, the enlightened 20th century, where there was advanced technology so that when they, in their delusional set where they don't face the fact that the people that they say, there's a piece I'm, I'm, I have to back up on. When you look at one tribe hating another tribe, they don't see them as human. When a woman is called a bitch, or a man is called a nigger, or a Jew is called a Jew bastard, or an Italian is called a wop, the names are endless. All of a sudden, what you realize is that that, and I call it a delusion because it runs in the face of the reality that all of these individuals are subjectively experiencing human beings. We have a capacity to dehumanize that is endless, and we don't even question it once we've done it. Um, there but, are. Could I, could, could Please. I just interrupt for a second here because uh, you're, you're calling that a delusion, and uh, the, that's correct according to the way that I learned the definition of delusion Go ahead. when Go ahead. I was coming up some 45 or 50 years ago, which is a, a delusion is it's the shortest definition of all in all of uh, medicine, which is a delusion is. Uh, a fixed false belief, but that's actually not quite enough because uh, the current uh, accepted and and I, I believe this is true uh, definition of a delusion is that it's a fixed false belief that is outside of the individual's cultural and environmental domain, uh, so that the 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 uh, the person who is screaming racial epithets is uh, maybe simply 
comporting his behavior to uh, what he understands of the, the the norms of the society in uh, in, in which he lives. Uh huh. You know, to me, that sort of takes soap and water and makes it a little cleaner. I mean, it makes well, it less it, real I, I'm to me. I'm not trying to. I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, not no, I understand. Use it or uh, anything. I'm, I, I, I'm just. I'm, I'm just trying to. I, I guess it just puts a slightly different construct on what you're saying. Yeah, it does. It doesn't invalidate your. You see, your because attitude. one of the things that all of our diagnoses do is assume that the problem is in the individual and not experienced as cultural. Because if it's experienced as a cultural phenomenon or or a real social phenomenon, then you can't call it in it that you know it has to it has a different meaning. Right. So that when somebody is crazy within what his cultural norm is, you don't make a diagnosis. But if it's this, to me, if it's this destructive, I can play around with those definitions. Because to me, once you say it's in the individual, and I don't know what that means. I don't know. I don't know where I end and where the world begins. I don't think anybody does. Uh, there's been all kinds of wonderful research over the years by, by philosophers and, and by a group of psychologists who, who really have struggled in the last 30 years to create um, a, a relational subjective psychology, a human psychology. And that is, so much of psychology assumes that we are a, a monad, that we move through the world independent of the world's effect on us. Like the cowboys, you know, I always love it when I watch a cowboy movie. The cowboy puts a, a blanket on the back of his horse. He doesn't have any food. He doesn't have a raincoat. He doesn't have anything. And he, he rides out into the prairie. He'd be dead in a day and a half. Yeah, right. But, but, but he, see, he's unaffected by his environment. He, he's above and outside the environment. And I don't think any of us are above or outside of our social relationships. Of course I, not. I, I can't see that as being a possibility. Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, before I get back into, because uh, I sort of jumped ahead, uh, I want to read something from my book. Uh, Martin Buber wrote, uh, Rabbi Bunam van Prusuka, one of the last great teachers of Hasidim, is said to have addressed his pupils thus, I wanted to write a book called Adam, which would be about the whole man. Actually, if Buber wrote today, he might even said, I want to write about the whole man and the whole woman. But yeah, back right. then, it's only the whole man. Yeah. But I decided not to write it. In these naive-sounding words of a genuine sage, the whole story of human thought about man is expressed. From time immemorial, man has been known, has known that he is the subject most deserving of his own study. But he has fought shy of treating this subject as a whole that is, in accordance with its total character. Sometimes he takes a run at it, but the difficulty of this concern uh, with his own being overpowers and exhausts him, and in silent resignation he withdraws, either to consider all things in heaven and earth save man, or to divide man into departments which can be treated singly in less problematic, less powerful, and less binding ways. And I think this is what psychiatry has done, what psychology has done, 
what so many studies have done. They, we don't try to grasp the larger picture, which may in fact be beyond us, but to find some kind of answers within grasping from the larger picture. Anyway, one more paragraph. I, I hope I'm not boring anybody with this. Sigmund Koch, one of psychology's strongest and acerbic critics, writes, Throughout this century and before, psychology has been under gracious, gracious dissemination, whether in school, bar, office, or bedroom, whether by book, magazine, electronic propagation, or word of mouth, to a voracious consumership. People everywhere have been given gratis, revolutionary reconceptions of the nature of man, reams, truckloads of them, all based on cogent and valid scientific evidence. They have been analogized, even hypothesized, as cockroaches, dogs, monkeys, and especially rats. The American Psychological Association had a, one year, I forget the year, the cover was the year of the rat. Not the year of the human being, the year of the rat. Um, they have them uh, as telephone exchanges, computers, or collegations of billions of the latter, as configuration, configured systems of protons, electrons, neutrons, and neutrinos, or as epiphenomena of direct current distributions in electrolytes, or as code-bearing macromolecules, as product of insufficient prophylaxis, or of neurobiotaxics, homeostatics, conditioning, reinforcement, contingencies, cognitive maps, cell assemblies, tote hierarchies, or computer programming lists, as empty intersections between S's and R's, topologically differentiated Jordan curves, collections of exponential functions or schematic scowbugs, as cybernetic mechanisms, information processing entities, or finite automata, as utilities optimizers, game strategists, pleasure principle protagonists, as mutual voyeurs, ego titillators, or masturbators, as collections of traits, attitudes, dispositions, instincts, or factors, as reactors, agents, achievers, self-realizers, autonomy maximizers, as ego, superego structures, ergon receptacles, phallic plastic copulators, vibrator cohabitators, as elements of group mind, filings in a social field, cooperating or competing or reinforcement bartering socii. A great paragraph. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> I wish I could write that way. All of which are produced as science and leave us nowhere in terms of how do we understand what happens to an experiencing human being when confronted with what, I'll use the word, trauma. Especially as we get involved and we move away from what the parent has done and recognize the parent is embedded, embedded in the larger social structure, almost always headed by somebody who has announced to the world, I know enough to make decisions for billions of people. Trust me. Can there be any words more dangerous than trust me? Actually, who did I read that said the most dangerous words in the world were, I know what's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> in any event, uh, that's, I think, where we are. We've contributed very little, 
And you and I walk in the street. Of course, we're filled with wine and good bread and pasta and yeah. some gelato. And we say, <laughs> the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we both believe it. And what, as a psychiatrist or a psychologist, do we contribute to that source of what we end up calling a mental illness? And I think it's a good question. I wish I had a good answer. Yeah. One final, I wanted to read something. Um, when I started to really try to figure out what I wanted to do as a psychologist after 30 years, I realized I can't read in psychology because it says the same thing. It goes around with the same assumptions, with the same so-called scientific evidence. Um, it doesn't go anywhere for me. So I started reading outside the field, and when I got very much involved in philosophy, because at least if, if philosophy has its own bullshit, it's a different perspective uh, in terms of, of coming back to the field of psychology. One of the, the people I liked very much was a Harvard psycho uh, philosopher named Robert Nozick. Um, and he, one of his, it's a little book called The Examined Life, Philosophical Meditations. Nozick died a few years ago of leukemia in his 60s, which is, I think was a loss. But he has a chapter in this on the Holocaust. And I want to read that, a couple of pay, a paragraph from, from Nozick's concept of the Holocaust to, to close the show and, and, and to finalize where I think the big problem is. He writes, the Holocaust is something we have to respond to in some significant way. And by the way, the Holocaust has very little to do in its larger implications with the fact that Germans killed Jews. Germans are human beings and Jews are human beings. And what the Germans did in seeing the Jews as rats, literally, and creating extermination camps that they meant literally, exterminating a disease of the fatherland, uh, has happened elsewhere. It's happening right now. Uh, I, I watch what's happening in Syria. Um, I'm watching uh, half the world arm itself to wipe out some other, either the great Satan I have people I live with who are constantly talking. We're now at a war with the Muslims. And unless we kill every Muslim man, woman, and child, um, they're going to kill us first. Uh, and I listen to this, and I say, they all mean it. They mean it. Yeah. So the Holocaust, yet it is not clear what responses would serve, remembering it, constantly being haunted, working to prevent its like from ever occurring again, a sea of tears. The significance of the Holocaust is more momentous even than these tracings can know and these responses can encompass. I believe the Holocaust is an event like the fall in the way, of tra the way traditional Christianity conceived it, something that radically and drastically alters the situation and state of humanity. I myself do not believe that there was actually an Edenic event since which man has now been born in original sin. But something like that has occurred now. Mankind has fallen. I do not claim to understand the full significance of this, but here is one piece, I think. 
it would not be a special tragedy if humankind ended. If the human species were destroyed in atomic warfare or the Earth passed through some cloud that made it impossible for the species to continue reproducing itself, I do not mean that humanity deserves this to happen. Such an event would involve a multitude of individual tragedies and suffering, the pain and loss of life, the loss of continuance and meaning which children provide. So it would be wrong and monstrous for anyone to bring this about. What I mean is that earlier it would have constituted an additional tragedy, one beyond that of the individual people involved if human history and the human species had ended. But now that history and that species have become stained, its loss would now would now be no special loss above and beyond the losses to the individuals involved. Humanity has lost its claim to continue. What do you think about that? Well, they are powerful words, and uh, it's a point of view that I think is uh, uh, defendable. I'm not sure that it's my point of view. Yeah, but, uh, it's it's a it's a very interesting one. Does it and define a problem that we're not dealing with as individuals, as societies, as groups, as in terms of being a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Is it something that millions of people may actually believe without being aware they believe it? Let's get it over with. I, I, I don't know. I, I raise that as a question because it's been a question that, that intrigues me. And, and as a question, a as question a psychologist... I, have, I don't have the, the, the slightest hint of an answer. It's not the sort yeah, of... Neither do I. But I know that we're not going to find the slightest hint of an answer. How, how, do we, how do we make it right? It's certainly not doing what our mental health field is doing. Because remember, the end product of what you and I believe is exactly what he says wouldn't be such a terrible thing, except in terms of the individual suffering that it would engender. Yeah. Do do you believe that it's uh, in our remit to try to answer that question? I mean, uh, no. No, I believe, though, it's it's in our need to try and answer the question, or at least begin to go beyond what your field, my field, our collective field is doing with people. But it seems to me that it's it's in our remit as as, uh, individuals or as people, but not necessarily as mental health professionals. Yeah. uh, Well, that's why I thought if the mental health field disappeared entirely, I'm not sure how much, how bad that would be. Well, that's probably a subject that we would have to spend quite a bit more time discussing. Yes, and we don't. But you know, in other words, this is where this is where my I, I said in my blurb opening the show, I said, I hope I'm delusional and everything I'm saying is wrong. It's possible. <laughs> it's possible I'm really crazy. But it seems to me this is what I do believe. Yeah. And that doesn't mean, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I, I'm working, you know, you know, I work in the nursing home, I told you. Right. So I'm working with a 93-year-old woman the other day whose sister of 90, who's 90 died. And she's in grief. I was, And I usually don't go in 
when somebody is grieving. To me, walking into somebody and saying, I'm a psychologist, I'm here to diagnose you, I mean, yeah. when you're grieving. And, and, and I'm, I am upset, by the way, about the, uh, the, uh, the grief exclusion being taken out of the DSM for depression. But that's another story. So I'm holding her hand and I'm talking to her. And she looks at me after about 20 minutes, a half hour, and she says, thank you for coming in. You've comforted me. I felt wonderful. She felt yeah, good. You, well, you did I, your job. Then I went and made a diagnosis so I could be paid. Yeah, right. <laughs> Jim, it makes me sick. <laughs> well, I, I think I uh, should be well paid for what I did because I'm I, not I, doing I, this. I am. I absolve thee for that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Father Morrow. <laughs> yeah. okay. So this is where I am. So I don't want to stop working with people, and I hope when I do, you know, when I work with somebody, it's positive. And and a number of people in the nursing home, you're the only one who listens to me. But I'm not listening to somebody who's sick. I'm not trying to cure anything. I'm trying to comfort them at a time of their life when it's very, very hard to be comforted because they really want to die. They've had enough. You know, they're in pain. They can't get out of bed. Their relatives are all dead. Their husbands are gone. Mostly women. You know, it's a. Of course. This is not a big problem for most men. We 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 have the smarts to get off earlier. <laughs> before we end up like that. Right. Anyway, I enjoyed this. Thank you for coming on. Oh, I thank you for the invitation. And uh, my intention is, I, I don't know if I'll call in uh, every time, but my intention is to listen to uh, your to your radio blog um, uh, every time. Oh, that's wonderful. So it's, I know at least one really person's great. listening. And by um, the way, it's a great picture of you on the website. Yeah, my daughter took that. That's when I was still living in New York. That picture is uh, about seven years old. But I look in the mirror, I still feel, eh, I don't look quite like that anymore, but what the hell. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I like how I look in that picture. Yeah, anyway, I, I was sitting. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's, it's uh, been really good uh, uh, listening in and making a, a small contribution. And, and thank you, and uh, say hello to Mary. I will do that. And uh, I'm going to hang up now. I'm going to end the show. Okay. And what happens, I, nobody calls in, and all of a sudden, a few days later, 3,000 people have come to the site. And I can't figure out for the life of me why people don't call in. It, it it makes me crazy because I can't have an answer to it. But yeah. anyway, uh, take care, Jim, and we'll talk okay. again. And you too, Larry. Good night. Bye-bye.